Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, the host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Today, I am so excited to have Alexander Rose on the show for his new book, The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. Alexander Rose is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Washington Spies which was the basis for the AMC television series, Turn. He has written several nonfiction books, and his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. He earned his doctorate from Cambridge University and is a member of the U.S. Commission on Military History, the Society for Military History, and the Royal Historical Society. Alex, how are you today? I'm not bad. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, absolutely. It's, of lies. Yeah, I mean, very impressive uh, introduction, too. <laughs> you know, I got to say, you're, so I don't think I've ever made this comment about a book uh, on the show. I loved your book, by the way. Oh, thank you. But the artwork on the cover of this book is incredible. For those who are, are listening and not, not watching, so it's The Lion and the Fox in big block Civil War era font. Um, you've got two sets of eyes that are like, just like slits. You've got a sinking ship, uh, painting of a, a burning ship that's sinking in the background, which I, I think I know what ship that is, but I don't, I don't know if it's a spoiler. If I say that here, or maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's really impressive artwork. I got to say. Uh, so I was very impressed with that. Well, thank you. I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, steal all the credit, but I can't. That was actually the designer, uh, the designer who came up with 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 the actual design. I was just there to be Mister Interference by saying, no, 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 I want the spy's eyes three millimeters to the left. So we oh, went back nice. and forth a lot like that, but no, I did not come up with that uh, okay. that, great, that great idea. I'm afraid. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, people do definitely judge a book by its cover. Uh, so good judgment <laughs> from me on on this. So your book, really interesting topic, a uh, topic I really didn't know much about. Um, the Civil War is very interesting to me, but I, I really only know like like the the high points. So Confederate spies in Liverpool in England, nonetheless, just a whole new topic for me. So I, I was I was so fascinated now you've written about the the Revolutionary War previously. Is this your first Civil War book? Yeah, I th- well, yes, I, I'm. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. I think I've had ch- I've had chapters in other books. I think I, for my Men of War book, I did a, a long analysis of the of the combat or the experience of combat uh, at Gettysburg. And I think in my book before this, Empires of the Skies, about zeppelins and airplane, the early you know early histories of airplanes. I you know I I think I kick kick it off with uh, Count von Zeppelin, the, the you know the creator of the great airships, who you know was a, a German officer who came over during the war, met Abraham Lincoln as you did, you know, just sort of waltzed into the White House, said hi. Um, and then went on a little tour of of all the little battlefields, and that's where he and he was out in I think Minnesota or somewhere, and he uh, he uh, he sort of went up for the first time in a, in a balloon, and that's what sort of set okay. him going with I'm going right. to invent an airship one day. So I have done Civil War stuff sure. before, but I'm not a I'm not a Civil War historian. Uh, sure, sure, sure. So 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 then you have so it, a book. It's like one and a half books, maybe of uh, of Civil War writing. Yeah, I've done a bit. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journeyman. Uh, Very cool. Very civil, cool. Civil, civil war historian of, of sorts. Well, but. well, then for this time period, uh, I guess what got you interested in it? What what made you want to write about the Civil War? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, first, you know, I'd, I'd done the Revolutionary War espionage or intelligence system with Washington spies, 
And I've always thought, oh, it would be nice to have a, a kind of a sequel. And uh, so, you know, I, I've always been wanting to do a Civil War book. And by the way, there's a, you know, I'm, what I'm writing now is, is the book I'd swore about a war I'd never write about, but I actually did, which is World War II. So I've actually, I'm actually doing one about uh, U-boats and intelligence okay. now. So I'm, it's going to be like the third in the trilogy, the sort of the return of the Jedi. Uh, <laughs> of, uh, well, I will definitely ask you about that later intelligence, on. American intelligence history. But, you know, the, the fact is that the idea behind this book, I mean, I think I wrote it down. Oh, it had to be, it had to be just to, just after... Uh, when Washington Spies came out, which is about 2006, 2007. Now, uh, you know, when, you, when you're when you a writer, you spend a lot of your time coming up with ideas and, you, you know, you write them down, you put them in a little, in a little file somewhere. And, um, you know, and then you come back to them a little while later, a couple of years later, and you think, oh, you know, geez, this, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. I mean, you know, was I drunk when I wrote this? Why did I ever think this was a good idea? And, uh, you know, so that happens with 99% of them. But there was this one here, which was about the Civil War. And I, and, and I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do it. I, I you know, I'd heard a story about these, uh, a Union spy and a Confederate spy in, in Liverpool during the Civil War. And I knew what I wanted to do was kind of base it on the old Mad Magazine strip of spy versus spy. You know, you have the black spy and the white spy, and they all try and they're kind of locked in this eternal struggle for, for mastery. So I knew what the, the shape of the book would be. I just didn't know how to do it. So what happened was, I mean, I couldn't, I was thinking about like, because it's such a complicated Byzantine story. And there are scores, you know, 200 ships involved and, you know, events overlap. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just, a, and there's tens of thousands of pieces, you know, documents about this, you know, here and there. So I didn't really know how to break the story. I couldn't figure it out. So I, you know, I went on to other things and then, but every so often I would come back and I would think, yeah, you know, this book, it'd be so cool. And I, I had the title, which was The Secret Agents, which was going to be, um, you know, um, you know, based on the sort of Joseph uh, Conrad, uh, The Secret Agent book. It was called The Secret Agents. It was so cool. Um, and then I, whenever I told my agent, yeah, I'm thinking of doing The Secret Agents, he would just go, that's the, that's a terrible title. you I'm not, I'm not even going to write that into a contract. I think it's a good title. It's straightforward. It was a fine gray, which I think was actually much, much worse. <laughs> I vetoed that. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, so, but I would keep on coming back. And eventually, just a couple of years, and so I went into other books, you know, like about Zeppelins and battles and all this kind of stuff. And I eventually came back to a couple of years ago, just before, I think it was just before COVID. And I, I figured out, it came to me in a kind of a, uh, like one of sort of Joseph's dreams, you know, like, oh, I know how to structure the book. And it was going to be a three-stage process. And it was very usefully alliterative too, in the sense that it was going to be about, part one was going to be the Raiders. Uh, sorry, the, uh, sorry the, uh, the Runners, the Blockade Runners. And then the part two was going to be the Raiders, Commerce Raiders. Part three was going to be the Lead Rams. So it was all the, the three R's essentially. And then everything would slot into that. The whole story would slot into those three phases, you see, um, with a bit of jiggery-pokery here and there. And, and so once I had that, then it was all go. And then, it, and then it, just, it just went really fast. I mean, it was the fastest book I wrote. I mean, there was a lot of reading to do, a lot of things to put together. But because of that very, that very strong you, structure. You had like, uh, I think I read in the, in the acknowledgments, there were some, however, thousands of mini intelligence reports that you had to go through at the... Was it the, the British Archive? Um, uh, no, 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 no. Everything was in uh, in the National Archives in well outside of Washington. Um, the, I think what you're referring to is the um, the, the, the 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 reports of the Liverpool consuls, the consul okay. of Liverpool to the State Department, and there are, I mean, hundreds of you know scores of volumes of this stuff of stuff that you know for various American consuls around the world. I mean, there was nothing special about Liverpool in that sense. And these guys would every week compile a report of a couple of pages and and sort of dutifully send it into the State Department in Washington, where it would, you know, some <laughs> low level uh, <laughs> civil servant would read it and go, mm -hmm, "Great," and then just sort of file it away. <laughs> and, but in 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 but so there was these hundreds and hundreds of reports that Thomas Dudley, that's the Union 
a spy who was serving as American consul in Liverpool had submitted. And people hadn't read these things in, I mean, since they'd been submitted, essentially. And they were all on the, the, the worst medium available. I mean, the, the medium whose name you hear when you're a historian and you just you shudder with dread, and that is uh, microfilm. Uh, no. <laughs> but, I've, I've looked at some microfilm. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you get used to it, but the whole fixing it up in the machines and the and the, the wheels yeah. you know, <laughs> squeaking back it's just, it's just horrible but but that everything was on there so just before covid hit i was lucky enough and then i just you know requested or ordered them to be digitized you know the, the relevant volumes of these and so they sent it to me it took took a couple of months and they got back to me and there was thousands of of pages throughout the war of dudley's reports and this stuff was intelligence gold I mean, there was that he had everything in there in this rather thankfully very easy to read nineteenth century hand, and it was just there was a, a question I had because I've seen story. Civil War documents that are just like this this writing that is you spend thirty minutes trying to decipher what it what it looks like anyway. There are the odd word, but nowadays when it's digitized, you I mean you can. I did this with Washington Spies as well. I don't I don't think I could have done it when it was simply on paper. You can just magnify it to you know two hundred times, and you can usually try and make out what they're saying. Though uh, with Washington Spies, with the eighteenth century, you're dealing with quills, and so you have to hope that the guy was was. Uh, you know, lavish enough to spend a little bit on a high quality quill and some good ink. Otherwise, it's very hard to read with a, you know, very, it's like writing, trying to make out a Sharpie or something, a thick Sharpie. But in this case, it was, it was quite easy. I mean, it took a long time to just go through them. And, you know, many of them were very tedious. But if you put it all together, I mean, you had the story of Dudley's espionage career in Liverpool throughout the course of the war. So it was a, you know, great, uh, great asset. Yeah, well, let's maybe let's dive right into kind of the uh, the backdrop of this story. Then, so your book starts in 1861 uh, in Liverpool, um, where we meet our, our first character, who you just mentioned, uh, Thomas Dudley. So, what was Thomas Dudley doing in Liverpool? You know what what was his personality like? You know what what was his job? Uh, tell us about about Dudley. Dudley was the son of a, a of a New Jersey farmer, very modest, humble background. Father died early. He helped his mother, you know, put you know keep the farm running. You know, a Quaker, strict. You know, you know, sort of you know highly regulated, very rigid, sort of background. Uh, he put himself through a, a sort of a local college and apprenticeship to become a, a lawyer. And so, you know, when, you know, by the time the war breaks out, he's, you know, he's got a sort of an established practice, and I think in Camden or Trenton or somewhere, it's just local, you know, conveyancing and base, bare bones lawyer. He, but he was more interesting than that. He was, you know, from a very early age, he was, he was very uh, powerfully uh, abolitionist. And he wasn't just him mouthing words, because anyone can do that. He would actually head off down south and dressed in what he believed to be a, a kind of <laughs> a slave trader outfit, which basically consisted of a big hat and uh, and a whip and a couple of guns. And he would uh, go down south and he would trace sl- uh, blacks who'd been sort of kidnapped across state lines from the free states and would be brought into uh, you know sort of Maryland and Virginia, and they would be sold on to go to the plantations in the deep south. And he would go and he would try and res- he would rescue them or he'd, you know, sort of buy them out, you know, buy, buy them out of bondage. And so he did this several times. I mean, this is a this is a risky thing to do. If you get caught doing this, you know, you're, you're, you're probably for the high jump. And so, you know, he and after that, he kind of goes into Republican politics in the early 1850s, you know, st- state level stuff. And he, he works. He pulls a few strings at the Republican convention that nominated Lincoln. And he manages to persuade the New Jersey delegation to switch its votes from uh, sort of their local favorite son to, to Lincoln. So he does some, you know, he does some service. And as, as a reward for this, uh, a couple of months after he becomes um, uh, inaugurated, uh, Lincoln calls him in and says, hey, so, you know, here's a bauble. Basically, that's how these things work. Uh, would you like to be ambassador to Japan? It's nice. Or would you like to be consul to Liverpool? 
which is a much lower diplomatic posting than obviously in an ambassadorship. Uh, you know, uh, Dudley was a bit of a homebody, didn't want to be away for too long. Being a consul meant you usually did about a year abroad, and it was something to put on your resume. And then he would come home and he'd get back to his practice. And there was another thing, too, in that a few years earlier, he'd survived a, a really horrific um, shipping accident where his the ferry he was on had, had sunk in an icy river, and he'd, he'd actually been, I think, technically dead, but was revived at the last second. So he kind of had this... Uh, idea that he'd been revived for to, to 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 carry out a kind of a divine mission, and that was to abolish slavery and and save the United States. And so he chose consul to Liverpool simply because, for that reason, that he wanted to be close to good doctors, and he thought being being in in I think Kyoto was just way too far away from the U.S. So he, that's how he ends up there. Now he thinks he's just going to be there for about a year. And he's going to be a consul. And a consul <laughs> is essentially some little appointee. And it's a, it's a kind of a sinecure, essentially, of you just, your job is just to bail out drunken sailors out of prison. And to, if some tourist gets pickpocketed, you make sure they have enough money and that they have a, you know, they get their passport stamp to get back to, back home. Well, you know, speaking, kind of speaking of drunken sailors and, and pickpockets, uh, I really loved how you opened this book with a description of Liverpool in the 1860s. Could you tell us a little bit about about Liverpool, what it was like and, and what Dudley was walking into when, when he took this job as consul? Well, uh, yeah, well, we tend to think as, you know, as moderns, we tend to think of Liverpool as, well, as the home of John and Paul and Ringo and George or, you know, Liverpool, you know, FC. It, w- it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, Liverpool was a very different city um, at, it was, at, at that time. It was the, possibly the greatest port metropolis in the world. It was, you know, it, it built more ships there than anywhere else in the world combined. It was, uh, it had the the sort of the world's first cotton or futures exchange was being developed there, stock, you know, stock, you know for speculation. It was immensely wealthy. And it was a huge cotton importer. I mean, nearly all of the cotton imported from uh, the South, which was in, in British terms, in colossal amount. I mean, it was, uh, the, what, I think, the, one of the biggest imports of, uh, in, 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 in Britain went, th- went through Liverpool and was, and was handled there through the exchanges. And then it went out to the big factories in Manchester and in Lancashire and other places where it would be, you know, converted into you know, textiles and wonderful clothing and then re-exported to the rest of the world at a huge markup. Now, Liverpool, so though... it's a very different place. Sorry? Well, Liverpool, though, it, it did have a darker side to it, I guess is what well, yes, uh, I'm remembering. The, 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 Massive so crime, that, murder. That there was that yeah. Liverpool. The kind of, you know, as, as sort of Jerusalem and Rome had once been, it was it regarded itself as the navel of the world. But there was also a, a, a different side to Liverpool, as you, as you just mentioned, and that was that it was also possibly the most crime-ridden, you know, vice-soaked city, not just in Britain but in much of Europe. You could you could put it into into that into that category. I mean, the the crime rate was astounding. The murder rate was unbelievable. You know, there were gang wars going on. It was all a bit you know, very, very peaky blinders, put it that way, you know, and uh, of the 1860s. It was, I mean, the, the, the 19th century equivalent of opioid abuse was, was essentially alcoholism, you know, yeah. rum. alcohol is what I remember reading about. Like three-year-old, you write about like a, a three-year-old being at the table and uh, drinking was not a, that's not an uncommon situation in Liverpool at this well this no time. and again you, you again you have to remember at the time there were there were no licensing rules literally anyone could open a pub in his or her own house I mean there yeah. were hundreds <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds of yeah. drinking places in in Liverpool so you know everyone and again it was so cramped the 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 the, uh, the density of the population was much larger than I think Singapore or anything like that it was really very very cramped especially in the slums you would have houses built for 10 people that would have 90 in them. I mean, this was a real, uh, you know, people were living in, in basements. There were, I think there were 24,000 children who lived on the street. 
you know, who were all kind of prey for various Fagans. So again, it was a very rough place. And then added to it, it was, there were thousands and thousands of sailors from around the world there too. So it was this, it was a really quite an extraordinary place, Liverpool. That, now, uh, yeah. Yeah. So when, when Dudley arrives in Liverpool, which Liverpool is he, is he seeing? Is he seeing kind of this very wealthy upper-class Liverpool or is it just, is the, is the slum nature of Liverpool so unavoidable? That, um, well, he, he disembarks at the docks, which were the <laughs> some of the worst of all. So he he gets to Liverpool and he's with his his rather nice family and and you know I mean he's immediately accosted by various you know con men, you know shiv artists, uh, you know various black market dealers. I mean it's a, it's it's a quite a it's quite a rough welcome. He was he was thinking he was, he was probably thinking you know I really should have gone to gone to Japan. <laughs> you know get this kind of I mean, this kind of stuff in Japan. You don't even get this stuff in New York. You know. Which was sort of gangs of New York style stuff. They, it was much better there uh, than in Liverpool. So, but he, you know, he makes his way, and he doesn't. He, and he also doesn't hang around a lot of the posh rich people, that sort of the great cotton lords or the shipbuilding dynasts or anything like that. And the main reason is, is it is a union man, and Liverpool was uh, a Confederate city. It was. It had so many connections to the south. That and it was so connected through. Uh, in the 18th century, it had been slavery, uh, but in the 19th century, it had become uh, cotton. That it was just extreme. I mean, he was just he was he was kind of this Daniel in a den of lions type thing. So he he, he you know he has very very few friends there. He's kind of cut off. He's isolated, and you know the whole business elite of the city is is really against him. I mean, he, he has a great story where, you know, being a, being a consul of Liverpool, an American consul of Liverpool, a bit like Nathaniel Hawthorne, the great writer had been consul there 10 years earlier and had a very enjoyable time of it because it was essentially, you know, you just go to a lot of dinners and have toasts to yourself and, you know, you know, American, British understanding and all this kind of stuff. It's a very easy job. Uh, for him, he gets visited. For Dudley, he's he's in his boarding house the, the first day or two he gets there, and he's visited by this 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 sort of congregation from the uh, what's known as the American Board of Commerce, who were merchants dealing with American affairs. They weren't Americans themselves. It was mostly cotton and, and shipbuilding and, and exports and stuff. And they just start lecturing him about how the war is going to be won by the Confederacy, and he should just give up now. And he just Basically, better to keep his nose clean if he knows what's good for him. And uh, Dudley, I think that uh, this is the first indication that that they don't understand who they're dealing with. And this would have worked on most other consuls, but on Dudley, he just decides, I made my, he writes down this, you know, I made my mind up to be very forthright in my reply. And so he just sends this broadside back to them. Say, stating that the United States will con- will prosecute this war against slavery to the last dollar in the treasury and the last drop of blood, and don't you know, underestimate us. We will crush these rebels. <laughs> yeah, he he definitely was not there to make friends. <laughs> grind their faces um, with so. our boots, kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they went away shocked. Yeah, that they were dealing with a, a wholly new creature here. So you know, Dudley Dudley is 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 a very strong character. It, you know, but again, as I said, he's a Daniel in a den of lions. He's a lot to struggle against there. Well, then let's then let's shift into the second main character uh, of this book, um, James Bullock, who is a Confederate man. Tell us a little bit about James Bullock. What what brings him to? We just touched on this a little bit, but what brings him to Liverpool? What kind of person was he? What was his personality? Bullock is the mirror opposite of Dudley. Uh, that's one reason why the book eventually became called The Lion and the Fox um, after a, uh, you know, a, a quote from Petrarch. But uh, you know, L- uh, Dudley is the lion, whereas Bullock is the fox. Bullock was a, you know, from an old time, old line Georgia family, you know, quite aff- you know, affluent merchants and you know, various gentry, slaveholders, you know, going back you know, 200 years or something. Bullock himself, James Bullock himself, spent very, very little time in the South. He he went to, he actually went to boarding school in Connecticut, I think, you know, from when he was a young age. And then when he was in his mid-teens, he joined the U.S. Navy. This is back in the, the 1840s or so. 
he didn't so he didn't grow up there. He never owned slaves himself. And as he said, he never owned any property down there. So he was based in New York. And after retiring from the U.S. Navy, he, he becomes a captain on, a I think, a mail steamer uh, that plies its trade between uh, New York and Havana. And, you know, he's a, he's a very good captain. I mean, he really is. He's very, very precise. and But he's always quite scheming. Uh, he's very manipulative, he's very devious, and he's very discreet. So, I mean, whereas Dudley was dogmatic, Bullock was feline, you could put it that way. And then he just gets swept up into the secret world by accident, almost, in that um, uh, the Confederate government notices is looking for, when at the outbreak of war, the Confederate government's looking for a, a very special person to conduct a, a very special mission in Liverpool, and that is to build a, or commission a clandestine Confederate Navy. The Confederate Navy at that time, at the beginning of the war, consisted of precisely one ship, so it wasn't very impressive. Uh, the U.S. Navy wasn't a whole lot better, but they had about sort of, you know, 30, 30 working ships. I mean, <laughs> these were not powerful things, but it was a lot, that, that was a lot better than the, than the Confederate one. The Confederate Navy had a lot of good officers who had volunteered or had left the U.S. Navy to come, but, you know, they didn't have anything to sail, any blue water ships, that is. So what's his name? Uh, uh, Bullock gets called in to see the, the sort of Secretary of the Navy, and he gets told about, look, we want you, we're going to send you to Liverpool, and we want you to just buy some, uh, you know, blockade runners, some commerce raiders, and eventually some ironclads, you know, which were very advanced uh, warships at the time. You have to be discreet. You have to be trustworthy. You can be left on your own for a long time because we're not going to be in, in contact with you. We'll send you lots of money. Don't worry about it. Can, Liverpool is on our side. This will be a doddle, you know. So Bullock also goes to Liverpool thinking he'll he'll only be there for about a year or so and that this will be easy. Uh, but he gets there and as he's traveling over to Liverpool, his mission, which was once very simple, becomes all at once very, very complex. Uh, and that is uh, for a couple of reasons. One of which is, is that the British declared unexpectedly neutrality. The Confederates had been assuming that the, that the British would would form a kind of an Anglo-Confederate alliance against the the hated North or the Union. Union was very unpopular in Britain because they were in Britain they were free traders and and in the North they were regarded as t tariff abusers kind of thing trying to you know destroy British industry kind of thing. Uh, whereas the Confederates were all you know kind of these plantation gentlemen <laughs> sort of thing uh, who were all quite in favour of free trade you know especially in the cotton trade for instance. So, but the British government for various reasons I go into in the book declares neutrality. And this throws a real wrench into Bullock's plan because he has to work within the boundaries of the law. And the law is, that's called the Foreign Enlistment Act. And this was a law that had been passed 50 years earlier that had never been tested in court. Hardly anyone had ever heard of it. And nobody had read it, really. It, it, it was just, it was one of these bits of legislation that were passed originally to, to prevent British mercenaries volunteering for rebellious activity against the Spanish in South America. That's what it was for. And it was passed and everyone just forgot about it. Nobody thought it would ever be used again. But it turns out that when you declare neutrality, that Foreign Enlistment Act swings into action. And what it means is, is that Bullock cannot build or commission or acquire, and I'm, I'm sort of simplifying here, sh uh, warships for the Confederates. He can't do it. Anything that looks like a warship will be impounded. You know, any, 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 uh, you know, anything like that. You know, he, he can't recruit sailors in Britain to to man these ships. He has to be. Everything has to be civilian, civilian, civilian. Yeah. So he, and he's really constrained, but he, he notices a loophole in, in this legislation that you could sail a fleet through that, no, again, nobody had ever seen or even, and they hadn't conceived of it at the time. And that is, is that, yeah, you can't build or acquire or commission a warship, but there's nothing stating that you can't build, acquire, commission 
a, for instance, a civilian ship, like a, a freighter or, you know, like a, you know, like just a sailing ship, you know, as a civilian. And if it is armed and equipped as a warship in international waters, neutral waters, not within British jurisdiction, by Confederate officers and then commissioned into the Confederate Navy, there's no law against that. You know, Queen Victoria does not rule, no matter what they say, it doesn't rule all the seas. Anything out of British jurisdiction is, you know, is, is open target. So with that in hand, Bullock can go around and see all these shipbuilders who are all very friendly. And as long as they don't ask him any questions about who this ship is for or what its, uh, what its ultimate intention is, then he's not going to tell them any lies. So, but they know, of course, what, yeah. what, the, what this all is. But essentially, he, he so what he does is he just commissions a bunch of ships, blockade runners, and and especially commerce raiders like the later Alabama and the that would become the Alabama and the Florida and the Shenandoah. And these were with these were spick and span. They 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 just look like regular civilian. Uh, trading ship merchant vessels you see yeah, so that was his goal was to what well, he was there was to to get these ships to then uh, be blockade runners against a blockade that the union army had set up on all the confederate ports in america right yeah that was the second complication when 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 bullock had left there was no blockade but lincoln decides to impose a blockade on on the entire south now Originally, people like Jefferson Davis and the and, and and the Southern government thought this was a joke. And the one the reason for that is is that there's about uh, just there's about thirty five hundred miles of coastline. You are going to need thousands and thousands of ships to guard that coastline and prevent any ships going in or out. And by the way, you know you cannot just stop British or French strip ships from from coming in. You, I mean that, that's illegal. Uh, under the term, in terms of various, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic arrangements, that's the law. State international law stated at the time that to be a, to be treated by outsiders like the British and the French as a real blockade, it had to be what's known as effective, and that is, it had to be seen to be working. It had to be blocking physically a lot of lot of trade. You see, then they have to res- then the British and the French have to respect it. But if there's a bunch of ships going in and out, in and out, in and out, <laughs> like, you know, out of you know, out of uh, Charleston and Galveston and all these places, then th- this this is a blockade, as, as Jefferson Davis put it. It's a paper blockade. It, it's not it's not real. And just because Lincoln says that it's a blockade doesn't mean that it is one. The British and the French will decide whether they respect it or not. So the point is is to as you to go back to what you were saying. The point is is for Bullock to build or commission or hire or attract dozens and dozens and dozens of blockade runners. These were small fleet vessels that could smuggle in guns, uh, munitions, luxuries, medications, drugs, even Bibles, things like that. Um, well, what is it? Was it, so was, was cotton not, was, was that not part of the, I got the impression that um, the real, what, what Bullock, wanted to do was smuggle was to get past a blockade with cotton exports um but was that not the case well that well, that's what he wanted to do well originally again it, everything changes while he's at sea so it was a bit of a sh- unpleasant shock when he <laughs> when he uh when he arrived in liverpool and found that his his very easy mission had suddenly become you know sort of mission impossible the fact is is that at the way the the he the south had originally thought of paying for all of these ships that it wanted to build was to just send lots and lots of cotton. You have to remember the British economy, uh, you know, something like 20% of the British population directly or indirectly relied on cotton for its daily bread. Now that includes uh, mill owners, it includes hundreds of thousands of mill workers, uh, sailors, brokers, you know, even the bakers literally baking the daily bread for for the people in the factories. I mean, it's a colossal reliance, dependence on southern cotton in Britain at that time. The South knows this, of course, and that's where the the, the famous phrase King Cotton comes from. I think it was some southern, Dem- uh, I can't remember his name, Hammond, I think. 
uh, declares, ne- you never declare war on King Cotton, we will destroy you. Because uh, what we're going to do, and so what the South did was, I think, possibly the most foolish thing that it could have possibly have done. And that was to impose its own embargo on selling cotton to Britain or anywhere else, but especially Britain was the sort of recipient of about 97% of it of Southern cotton. And at the same time as there was uh, Lincoln's blockade. So you've got this dual blockade and self-embargo. Now, the, the reasoning behind the embargo was that it would... It would it would threaten to induce a national heart attack in Britain, and that would in in turn um, oblige the British to come onto the Confederate side. You see, and so they could get the cotton flowing again. Again, you can see there's a problem with here, and that is is that you don't start messing with or threatening a, a you know a hyperpower. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially when you're the weaker party in this. Sure. Uh, You've you said this a little bit, but I'm I'm very curious about the perceptions and the attitudes in England with the U.S. Civil War. Now, you said that most people in England, if if they had an opinion, you didn't say this, but um, you you said that there were Confederate uh, leanings in England for sure. You write in the book that Liverpool was like the most Confederate place in England. Yeah, I, I might be paraphrasing here. Um, but talk a little bit about those attitudes. How did people in England view the the U.S. Civil War? Uh, the British the British attitude towards the Civil War was 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 much more complex than we usually think. It was very confused, and it, to, to put it bluntly, they 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 couldn't really get their heads around it. <laughs> they didn't they didn't really. There was a lot of theories about what the war was actually about. Um, there were there were there were some. Uh, newspapers and and journalists and 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 politicians who thought that it, this was essentially just a, a yet another just a, just just a regular turf war. You know, we get them in Europe. It's just guys in the south, guys in the north. They each want to conquer each other. It, this is just an old tawdry tale of imperial power. Uh, there were others who thought the South were acting like spoiled little kids who hadn't gotten what they wanted. And when they didn't, they just stormed off and took their toys with them and they've launched this dumb war. Uh, there were others who thought, well, the North had it coming. They're a bunch of bullies. We don't like them. Good for the South. And more to the point, uh, you know, there's always a bit of sympathy for the underdog, you know, the rebels, all this kind of stuff, you know, the, the teaching, te- and the teaching these, you know, uptight Yankees, a thing or two about fighting. Um, there was also, and there were also ones about, there was a class thing. Uh, you know, there were many aristocrats in Britain who quite liked the idea of this sort of rural utopia of the South with the sort of lordly plantation owners governing over tens of thousands of acres. You know, they, they kind of left out the slavery aspect of all of this. And, you know, but I think they kind of regarded this kind of almost like the medieval peasant system. That was sort of how it tra- translated into their heads. And you know there were still others who thought that that uh, you know thought that the South was just that they thought the South was right to rebel, but they couldn't support it. And the reason is, and people tend to forget this, is that Britain has an empire, and there are many colonies in say the Caribbean, and if they start supporting rebels against what is regarded as a legitimate government in Washington then surely all of their imperial possessions could also have that same idea. And so you would have rebellions in, you know, many of the, in, in, in many of the uh, you know, Caribbean countries. And let us not forget that this was about 1861. I think just a few years earlier, the, you'd had the, what's traditionally known as the great mutiny and, or in, in nowadays called the rebellion in, in India against the East India company, which had obliged the British government to come in and run India. They do not want to start giving lots of people all these terrible ideas about rebelling against central authority from London. And, and why? Why Liverpool? Uh, why was Liverpool? Well, such it was a the basic what the, what the British government ended up doing was 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 satisfying no one, and that is they just that's when they declared neutrality. You see, with benefits. So it wasn't so the the South had I think a right to come into British ports. But they weren't recognized as a as a as an actual independent country. 
Um, they were regarded as belligerents, which is a different diplomatic status. So it was a very complicated little pirouette that the British were doing about how exactly to 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 to, to work out. But I think the the Foreign Secretary Lord Ross at the time said, you know, he just said, I, I don't know, I, I honestly don't know what the, what our colonial cousins are up to. He said another one of their weird fights. I, I don't know what to do, but for God's sake, let's just keep out of it. So that was it. So basically, the British idea was neutrality. Uh, when we see who who's emerging as a winner, then we'll back that side. You know, the usual diplomatic sure. stuff. As for Liverpool, Liverpool was even in Britain. You know, uh, you know where, where the Confederate sentiment was very high, uh, owing to the usual romanticism. It was, uh, as I said, it was because of the, the you know the cotton links. There was a lot of links that had, that went back generations. You know, a lot of the. Um, the great cotton lords were descended from the sort of the merchant princes of the 18th century who'd made fortunes in, you know, ship, ships and, and dealing in slaves, African slaves for the South. Uh, and when Britain banned slavery or outlawed slavery, uh, they kind of just switched from being <laughs> slaving to, you know, cotton, you know, same, and they dealt with the same people, essentially. So these links go back a long way. And it, this was a mercantile city that didn't want to have anything to do with politics. And they just they just thought the South w- was in the right here that they could do deals with the South. The North was just you know a bunch of you know tariff blockers uh, and just generally annoying um, people. And so that so that's it's a bullet remarks when he gets off the ship in Liverpool for the first time. And this was much to Dudley's disgust. He actually saw more Confederate bunting, you know, flags and you know little bits and pieces from stores, you know, from stores and hung along streets and lampposts. And then you saw it even in Richmond. I mean, this was a super pro-Confederate city. So when Bullock gets there, yes, he has some problems to deal with, with the Neutrality Act and everything, but he's on really friendly territory. Sure. I mean, he's, he is the, he's the den of lions. And <laughs> sure. yeah. to, to uh, Dudley's Daniel. Well, let's talk about some of the espionage activities that uh, with uh, with Dudley and with Bullock. So this kind of cat and mouse game. What were what were some of these these activities that they were more these more secretive activities, and what were they trying to thwart uh, each other from doing? Yeah, the actual the actual setup was quite simple, and that was Bullock was there to build. Blockade runners, commerce raiders, and rams, ironclad rams. That was his mission, and he was dedicated to it. And Dudley's job was to stop him. That that was essentially what he was supposed to do, by any means necessary. Now, the problem is, is that Bullock has a thumb on the scale for him. The, the, the British government really doesn't want to act on things, it, it's just it's sort of turns the old sort of Nelsonic eye to a lot of things, and just says, "I don't see any problem here." If you know, this, can we just make this problem go away? So Dudley is trying to stop Bullock through legal means. He's trying to get the British government interested in cracking down and enforcing the Foreign Enlistment Act, essentially on Bullock. That will shut him down. Bullock, of course, is way too clever and and, and feline for that. So he set things up that he's got, he's Mr. Clean Hands. You know, he has no connection to a lot of the ships. Uh, you know, he's got a bunch of front companies. There's a, he's got a lot of, there's hundreds of companies around that will do dealings with him and they won't ask any questions about where things are. He's got things set up so that he's got a clean ship, you know, uh, in Liverpool, you know, the merchant, a merchant ship. And he's got uh, an, a secret arms ship down in London, like in some old freighter that nobody's paid any attention to. And the two of them will rendezvous somewhere in the Azores or the international waters, and they will transfer the weapons to the ship and then and, and outfit the ship as a, as a Confederate warship. So he's got this whole thing set up. And it, it just it's very, very difficult for Dudley in such an unfriendly environment to try and penetrate that network to get in there and to get information. You see, so but he again he just keeps on going. He and he loses several times. I mean, over and over again. Um, it's like it's like Bullet can see around walls, can see around, can or see through walls and see around corners. He's like a magician. He it's, he seems like he always seems to know what Dudley's about to do, <laughs> and, and you know take evasive action. Um, in the book, again, it's not not a big spoiler, but it turns out that Dudley uh, that Bullock has an inside man at the Foreign Office who 
Kent, who is supplying him with tip-offs that there's a raid coming or Dudley's just is planning something, get that ship out now before the inspectors come. Uh, he's also, and I found this in the in the Bullock papers. He was very Bullock was very careful about to destroy most of his papers, but for some reason he kept this, and it's an extraordinary document. It is it's about thirteen or fourteen pages long, handwritten document, and it it, it is written by. Uh, a, a clerk to uh, Mr. Squarey, a great, great name for uh, a very great Victorian name for uh, Dudley's tr- very trusted solicitor. You know, the guy who handles his legal affairs with with the government. And it turns out that Bullock had obviously paid this clerk to tell him what was going on, like what what Dudley was doing, what papers and affidavits he was filing through the through Mr. Squarey. And it's very, very detailed, and it, it's just, it's an extraordinary document because that and that's how. Bullock knew everything that was going on. He just had his, he had the inside track on everything. So it's, it's certainly sort of cat and mouse. It's not even cat and mouse. It becomes, it's sort of cat versus cat um, kind of situation, especially as, as you know, Dudley, when he first arrives in Liverpool, he's, he's, he's this kind of quivering Dante figure he doesn't know anything he doesn't know the lingo he doesn't understand how this city works he's this naive there and again bullock is just outplays him at every turn but he learns and he you know he befriends this detective called Maguire, who's this kind of irish red-haired you know almost like a straight out of central casting yeah and you know he he's the guy who's been in liver he know he's a former cop when he become private detective, you know, and he, um, you know, he kind of shows this Dante. He's the Virgil who shows him around the Inferno and how to understand and how to, and how to change. So what happens is, is that over time, Dudley becomes more like Bullock, you see. And he, instead of being the little quivering mouse, he becomes the, you know, the, the dexterous cat, and so he eventually he turns the tables on on Bullock and he sort of outwits him. You see, that's the, yeah. sort of the setup of the whole thing. Well, and it's no, you know, everybody knows the Union won the war, uh, so not 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 too much of spoiler, a spoiler. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about how how things changed for for both of these men as the Civil War progressed. At the beginning of the war, obviously, the South was doing much better, and um, Dudley was having a much harder time with what he was trying to do, but they, they, they mirror each other a bit. Talk a bit about how things change for, for Dudley and for Bullock. Yeah. Situations change. Uh, at the beginning of the war, Bullock is, you know, he's cock of the walk. He's, you know, you know, got, he's got the run of Liverpool. He knows everything's going on. Uh, Bullock, but the, but over time, you know, the war in America changes and, you know, attitudes that were in Britain at, in, say, 1860, 1861, they shift as well. And what over the course of the war, Bullock finds that he, over time, he's not, he's, the territory isn't as friendly as it once was. Let's put it that way. In fact, it's becoming distinctly unfriendly. And the, the, the great catalyst here was Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. You see, which when he, when he originally announced that he was going to emancipate slaves people in britain were like oh this is just a this is just a little gimmick you know he's not really going to do it that's insane right he's not going to do it but then he actually does it and at that point uh, as 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 uh, as dudley writes home he's astounded that you know there's this sort of you know winds of change sort of blow through britain and this becomes a moral crusade against slavery yeah, I think you're right that at the very beginning of the war, there were like three anti-slavery meetings going on in Liverpool, but it jumps out to like- Even in the country, there were just the country. There literally a handful of abolitionist meetings, and they always took place in these sort of drafty uh, Quaker meeting houses in sort of Leicester or somewhere like that, and they were attended by 12 people, you know, all of who were sort of well-meaning dissenters and all that kind of thing. Nobody cared. It was just sort of this- weird niche interest <laughs> but after that as, as Dudley says he, he can't get over the fact that you know in early 63 even in Liverpool at St George's Hall or one of the, the great meeting halls there's thousands of people who come 
to this abolitionist meeting and and listen to for hours and hours. And at the end of it, the name of Lincoln is cheered. Yeah. Which and they're there for human rights. Murder. It's the human rights draw that brings them there. It's not some economic or or other factor. It is slavery and how morally opposed these people are to slavery. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's a distinct difference. And I think I have a statistic in the book. I think, I, I'm just for a comparison, there's like eight or nine abolitionist meetings in 1862, very small things. In 1863, there's something like 73 giant meetings that take place in all, all the major cities and that are packed out. And the name of Lincoln is cheered. This was becomes a huge, uh, you know, uh, wind at Dudley's back. And Bullock, for the first time, realizes he's on his back foot. That, you know, that, that things are going to start getting more tricky because when you have so many people suddenly backing the Union uh, against the Confederacy, you know, the British government is going to start taking a very close look at at his doings. See, Dudley is just going to be given, uh, you know, a, a fairer hearing down in London, you know, with at the at the Foreign Office and 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 the Customs Inspectioners and all this kind of stuff. It just becomes easier, and so that's when the you know the the tide begins to turn against Bullock. And it doesn't. It's not made better by the fact that the Confederacy too is on its back foot. So he's running out of money. You know, the, as I said, with the embargo, this cotton embargo, the the, the South shot itself in the foot. In the sense that it's he couldn't he didn't have any money he had to go through all this weird cotton smuggling, you know, exploits in order to try and raise and he's always trying to search around for money to to build you see, and as and as then as the war goes on it becomes harder and harder to get credit, you know his friends aren't as, quite as friendly as they once were you know there's, the British are cracking down the U.S. Navy is also getting really pretty good at stopping blockade runners so this is becoming an expensive sport to play because for a time it was like speculating in internet stocks in 2000 or whatever it was you know you could you know or, you know or you could uh in like meme stocks or something you could you, you know people would get together and they would uh fund a blockade runner and send in pianos and chandeliers and things to the south and they would make a fortune on it but once the u.s navy starts stopping your ship you lose everything you know, your ship gets taken off the board and an experienced crew and captain get put in jail. And suddenly this isn't as much fun as it used to be. So that's essentially the situation from sort of 64 onwards. Things are getting very rough for Bullock, but he doesn't give up. He actually mounts his most ambitious escapade. And that was the Ironclad Rams. It's his kind of his last chance at greatness. And, you know, Bullock, uh, Dudley, uh, you know, manages to kibosh that. Uh, through a very uh, sort of convoluted means involving a very dubious French uh, financier and uh, a, a very odd transaction with the a fake Egyptian pasha. Uh, it's a yeah. very, very odd story, very complicated story about how it went down. Towards the end, a lot of there are a lot of foreign actors that 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 enter the picture. I didn't realize that Napoleon the Third was it was pro Confederate. Oh, he was. He, uh, at one point, Bullock is thinking, actually thinks of moving operations because things are becoming so unfriendly in Britain. He thinks of moving operations to Paris. And he actually approaches Napoleon III and says, hey, do you think you could give the Confederacy some ships? Napoleon III can see the writing on the wall too here. You can also see who's losing. He doesn't want to be on the losing side. And so he says, eh, you, know, you, know, you know, that sort of, uh, sort of Gallic shrug type thing. <laughs> And that, but it's through that through those meetings that that, that Bullock meets this French financier called uh, Monsieur Brothet, who has connections in the Middle East and Egypt, and that's when he comes up with this ambitious plan to build these two warships. Which again, you know, you are bra- you seriously breaking the Foreign Enlistment Act with that. Uh, you can't hide these as civilian ships when they've, they've got metal moving up, uh, turrets on board. You know, I mean, they're made <laughs> of iron. <laughs> And they're going to be built uh, on behalf of the the nascent Egyptian Navy and the French financier is going to be the broker. And then it's going to transfer the ownership at sea. It's, it was very, it's a, one of these very strange, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, gun running, uh, you know, arms operations. Very, very uh, complex. But it's, it's quite good fun. So that I had a lot of, uh, I, I was very interested in sort of excavating that, that completely forgotten story uh, and putting it together. Very complex about how it all went down. 
Well, uh, ultimately, uh, Dudley prevails over Bullock. Uh, the Union wins the the Civil War. Um, what? So, how did how did Dudley's efforts? Um, how did that help the the Union win the war? Dudley's efforts were important because people tend to forget this. They they tend to think about the Civil War as you know guys in blue and gray fighting at Gettysburg. They think of the land war and what was happening in, in, in America, I mean, which was obviously important. But they, they tend to not really think too much about the, the, the war on the waters, the, 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 the naval aspects of this whole thing. And what Dudley, the reason why Dudley is important is because he stops Bullock uh, from sending all of these blockade runners and commerce raiders and uh, ironclad rams from either getting out or inflicting too much damage. You know, the war is, was not a foregone conclusion in 1861 to 1863 by any means. And also you have to remember the South doesn't have to win the war. What it does is it just has to not lose, you see. So that's that's really the basis for Bullock's strategy here in that he doesn't have to sink the entire U.S. Navy. He just has to cause enough havoc and chaos and sink enough of them that, you know, Lincoln or hopefully his successor, you know, McClellan, that's what the South was backing in the, I think, the 1864 election. They were trying to mount an operation to, 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 to move public opinion against Lincoln, is that they need to, the, the South can kind of extract or offer an armistice. See, it's not a peace, it's not a surrender, but it's an armistice and the, the lines will say, so they, that's the big game here. You see, that's out of everything. But so, but by 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 crippling Bullock so many times, despite so many challenges, you know, Dudley kind of removes that option. You see, from the table, and so yes, the war has to be fought to its conclusion, and yes, the South has to surrender unconditionally, rather than getting away with it with a, an, an armistice that will probably preserve slavery for another few generations until it can be sort of slowly eradicated. So that's 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 how important Dudley was. Well, I know one one of your previous books has already been turned into a a TV series. What what's what's the uh, is there a, a future? Would you like to see this uh, adapted to TV or or film? It, it's it has a yeah, very cinematic I, I, feel I to it. I very much enjoy earning a lot of money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would love to see that. I would love to see all my books turned into uh, wonderful. Uh, the, the latest Spielberg flick. But <laughs> are there any talks? Is that in, in is that a, a discussion that you're having? Uh, right I'm now? talking to a couple of people, but uh, you you know once you've done this a few times, you realize. And th- I, this was the same with Washington Spies. You know, like you know, a lot of books get optioned. There's a lot of talk. People love to talk. People love to have lunches. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't know, one out of five hundred ever makes it to screen. So never get too excited about it. This is kind of interesting. But there's a couple of talks. We'll see. I think it would be fantastic if I do say so myself. Now, I, uh, I, I think I, so I read, I might've read this wrong, but on your, I was looking at, at your bibliography on Wikipedia or something, and it will show like appearances. Well, yeah, really, really. <laughs> did okay, you, yeah. did you, did now, did you make an appearance on the Washington Spies TV show? On yes, film? I, 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 it's, it's my great Oscar-worthy acting. Uh, oh, it is in the, I think it was in the final season, and it is a, I was writing on the show, you see, and uh, helping produce it. And I just thought, oh, it'd be so cool to just be in the show, just as a cameo. Because uh, the one thing you learn is, is that when you do these kind of cameos, there's a couple, there's one or two other cameos from some of the other writers in there, uh, just over the course of the episodes. And I thought I want to be immortalized in film, you know, and, but you can't have a speaking role because that takes a job away from actually, you know, like a real actor who earns money for it rather than just me showboating. And so I came up with, I think I, I, I was a lieutenant or an ensign or something like that to uh, Bern Gorman, who is a major, oh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Hewlett. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ca- characters to write. And I was his aide. And so my job, and you see me in one of the episodes, for not no particular reason, Major Hewlett is walking down darkened streets and I'm behind him carrying a briefcase. And, 
Very nice. <laughs> and at one point, I think I go, I sort of went, I go, I sort of salute him and take the case and walk down the street. So that was my great, uh, yeah. that was my great acting, uh, my great acting, uh, you know, appearance. Well, now if this, if this goes to, to film or TV, who are you going to play? Uh, I will probably be, be a pickpocket uh, in, Le- in unshaven sailor number four, <laughs> uh, you know, in the background, just sort of <laughs> drinking from a bottle of rum or something. That's that'll that'll be what I do. Wonderful, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's it's, it's I'm know, sure acting's not as easy as you think. I mean, I did get plaudits from all the professional actors there, of course, <laughs> sure. brilliant turn, but uh, uh, it's a you know it's a hard gig, I have to say. Well, uh, Alex, this has been a, a terrific uh, interview and, and discussion, and uh, I've I've learned so much from you and, and from your book. So thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Uh, if folks want to, if they want to follow you, or if they want to get in touch, how can are you on social media? How can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, uh, I have a website, um, uh, alexrose.com. That's where you can you can contact me through there. That's there's a contact page there, and you can find out more about my. Uh, my books and 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 things like that. Uh, I also run a Substack newsletter on historical intelligence, historical spying, stuff that interests me. Uh, that's called Spionage. That's S P I O N A G E. Um, that's on Substack. Comes out once or twice a month. It's a free thing. Uh, sign up for it. Glad to have you on board. And you know, I'm on you know I'm on Twitter and under I think Alex Rose Writer. I don't, I'm not, I don't spend a whole lot of time on there, but you know, I'm around. So yeah, Wonderful. so um, feel free to, to, to stop by. Wonderful. Well, Alexander Rose, uh, the lion and the fox, two rival spies and the secret plot to build a Confederate Navy. Go pick up a copy, go check it out from your library, read the story. Uh, I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And Alex, thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks, thanks for listening to my very long explanation. No, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs>